Hi, my name is David Catterford, CEO at Champion Iron. We operate a high-grade iron ore mine in the north of Quebec, produce around 15 million tons of one of the most needed materials to decarbonize the steel industry. We benefit from over $4.5 billion of invested capital at site, and our balance sheet is very clean to allow us to potentially grow in the future with higher grade material and also more volume. David, thank you very much for a um, very succinct and clear introduction. Um, really nice to meet you. Uh, you did an interview with Crux two or three years ago, and the share price since then has just been really, really solid. You know, you've, you've the contrary to most junior or mid-tier or even large cap mining companies, you've, your share price has gone from low to high, bottom left to top right. So, um, and during that course, you've done this extraordinary expansion, you've doubled your output. So could you just summarize what's kind of accompanied that, let's say the two year kind of share price growth and your kind of your key delivery milestones that you've achieved so in that time? I think if we take a step back and we look at what is a clear differentiator is that management and directors own over 10% of the business. So every time we take a decision, we're fully in line with shareholders because we are a significant shareholders as well. So I think that sets us apart and allows us to focus on the things that will be accretive for our business. And the one that has been the most accretive in the past years has been us delivering one of the largest mining projects in North America in the, 10, in the last 10 years on time and on budget. And this is on time, on budget during a COVID um, pandemic and we still managed to hit our targets. So extremely proud of what we've done. And this allows us now to put an extra seven and a half million tons of the highest grade or some of the highest grade material in the market. Um, you say it's a differentiator. I mean, I, it's worth pointing out that your market capitalization is three and a half billion Canadian. Um, it's quite often to find a, a micro cap stock with um, management yes. and directors with 10% or more, but not so often when, you, when the, the, the company has grown to, to the size that it has. Um, you picked up uh, the Bloom Lake asset from cliffs in 2016 and it um it had run out of options and it was no longer profitable and they had decided to close it so what how did you go about identifying what were the key bottlenecks and the kind of the, the value drivers of bringing this back online yeah, i think one, one of the advantages we had is that i have been working at bloom lake since 2010 so i saw the 2010 to 2014 uh i saw so when cliffs picked up the asset and then invested over two and a half billion dollars in the asset to fix the original issues. And they were very close to getting to the finish line on most of their projects. So when we picked up the asset in 2016, we did a full-blown feasibility study to see what needs to be done to become a low-cost producer and also make sure that we can maximize the tons that we produce at site. And we delivered that first project on time, on budget in 2018. And as you probably saw with the results, in just a few months, we hit commercial production, hit nameplate capacity, and already started working on the um, on the expansion. And I think the biggest highlights for us, there was obviously what we did at the mine, but it was all the logistics side as well. So when you talk about bulks, logistics are extremely important. And not only the Quebec government, but also the federal government invested over $700 million in logistics at the port and on a small spur of rail to make sure that this operation can be uh, efficient and other operations in the uh, in the region as well. So. Let's talk about the um, your output at the moment. You've got 15 million tonnes um, of annual capacity or uh, projected output. Last year, you produced um, 
closer to 8 million tons and you've, you've put in the second concentrator. So you should be able to, in, in theory, the plan is to ramp up that concentrator and to reach that uh, nameplate capacity of 15 and possibly exceed it. Um, where are you in that ramp up process? Yeah, so the, and the end of last quarter, we were running at around a 12 million ton per year run rate. And uh, we've since improved the, uh, the operations. So we feel fairly confident that in the coming months, we'll be at full nameplate capacity of 15 million tons per year. Of that, you've just produced this feasibility study to take 8 million tons of it, of your concentrate. So you produce a, uh, a, this, a magnetite concentrate running 66% iron content. And you've just produced a feasibility study to um, upgrade 8 million tons of that to a 69% direct reduced iron uh Pellet um, um, feed is that right? Pellet feed. Yeah, if we just uh, take a little step back, we have the advantage of not having magnetite, so we actually have a hematite ore body, and that allows us to not have to grind down as fine to be able to reach these sorts of grades. So that's a big key difference for us because logistics-wise, we don't need to pelletize our material to be able to sell it to the market. And what we're seeing is there are more and more demand of this high-grade pellet feed because there's more and more of the uh, steel companies transitioning their blast furnaces towards electric arc furnaces. And as they do that, they'll need the ultra pure material. So our intent is to be able to take first half of our tons and being able to upgrade them to 69%. And just to put that in context, our hematite in the ground has oxygen and iron. So you can't go over 70%. The other 30% is oxygen. So when we say 69% material, well, it's actually one of the purest iron ores on Earth because we're about 99% pure on our actual mineral. When I was looking through all your, um, all your promotional material in your videos, n there was no real mention of geology. And um, I, <laughs> I, am, I am a geologist, and so I, I, um, I, I am interested in the difference between um, hematite and magnetite because magnetite is, is uh, typically a very corrosive and a hard mineral. And talk me through the... The, the the enrichment process. If you produce a sixty six percent iron concentrate at the moment, it, pr presumably it's low in deleterious elements. It's low in silica and alumina. Um, how are you going to? You know, what is the actual kind of mineral processing steps that you do to get it to sixty nine percent? And I'm aware that you're a mining engineer and I'm a geologist, and I'm looking for that middle line between the two. Yeah, the big advantage we have, and my wife is a geo that worked at uh, Bloom Lake, so I, I, I get in the family a little bit of both. But if you look at the big advantage we have with our ore body, it's one in the ground, it's fairly coarse hematite. And when I say coarse, it liberates at roughly about one millimeter. So at that sort of size, it's a big difference from magnetite ore bodies that you need to grind down almost 20 times finer to about 45 microns. So this is one of the advantages we have. And the second advantage is in the, um, in the actual ore body, we've got pretty much only iron uh, or hematite and silica. So we've got no phos, no sulfur, as you mentioned, no alumina or practically no alumina. So that makes not only a high grade material, but a very low uh, contaminant material. So when we separate it, it's a fairly simple process because silica is about half the weight from iron. So all we do is we pass it through um, spirals, a little bit similar to uh, going to the water slides. The silica will go to the, uh, to the end, iron will stay in the middle. Then what we use are hydro settlers. So it's a little bit like a flotation process, but inverse, and you'll float out the, uh, the silica because it's, um, it's much lighter. 
And we also do use magnetic separators, but they're high intensity magnetic separators to allow uh, us to re recover the fine hematite. So when you combine those three processes, that allows us to have an iron recovery of roughly about 83% and at the same time produce today a 66% material. Now to go to the 69%, essentially what we will do, we will take that material, put it in an addition to the phase two plant, regrind a little bit the material to just further liberate it, and then we'll use a flotation process to actually float the silica. And this is a known process in the iron ore industry, it's not anything new. And the big advantage that we have at Bloom Lake, again, is we don't need to grind very fine to be able to produce this. So the actual 69% concentrate, or what we call pellet feed, can be transported by rail, by uh, vessel uh, after, to be delivered to our clients without having to pelletize it. I was going to, I was going to ask, that was going to be one of my questions about, you know, how do you get it to the pelletizing plant or the potential destination? You know, because typically when you are dealing with these ultrafine magnetite concentrates, you slurry it down a pipeline you um you fluidize it to a degree and, and 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 then get it down a pipeline um which brings you into all kinds of different logistical challenges of dewatering and blain indices and, and and that kind of stuff but you don't you, you can treat this as a as a fine product essentially correct so we'll uh remove the water bring it down to roughly about two to three percent moisture and then it'll be able to go down the actual uh rail line about 400 kilometers down to the port and then be handled uh, and uh, put in bulk vessels, typically cape-sized vessels, and then sent to our clients. Um, just going back a step, when you talked about the upgrade of the from the sixty-six to the sixty-nine percent, uh, is that a regrind of your um, final concentrate? So, if if you produce fifteen million tons, twelve million tons of product, you'll take half of that and regrind that is that is, is that the bit that you regrind or are you doing an earlier regrind or, uh, earlier in the process yeah so the way that it's done if you look at the way bloom lake is set up right now we have our original concentrator that produces call it eight million tons per year and there's a second concentrator around 50 meters away from the first one uh, that is able to produce it, it's a mirror concentrator from the first one so that's why in our feasibility study we came out with 15 million tons per year and the intent is once the material has finished going through the second concentrator, so all that seven and a half million tons from that plant will then go into the flotation plant to be upgraded to 69%. And the big advantage for us is that once we see that market evolve, we'll be able to potentially install another one of these units beside our first plant and then produce a full 15 million tons of this DR material. Okay, does that mean that the second concentrator is grinding slightly finer than the first concentrator? to liberate more. So the, the way that it's done is the concentrator will operate exactly the same way. And once we're at final concentrate, it'll enter the addition where there'll be some regrinding that'll be done at this stage and then pass through the flotation and then filtered to be able to uh, to send to our clients. So we take the, the, the end product essentially of the plant and then uh, regrind it and uh, process it. Okay, great. Now, moving downstream, step by step, just forgive my the way my brain works. Um, you, we come to the railway line. What's the capacity of that? And, and then it comes to the port. But first of all, the railway line. Yeah, so it's, it's a unique situation in the world, especially in the iron ore world, because it's one of the only hubs. And you have to remember, Canada is the second largest hub of high-grade iron ore in the world. And if you look at this, um, at this area, it's actually got around an 80 million tons, 80 
ton of capacity on the rail. And that's really a big differentiator because today, even with our expansion, we'll be utilizing about 40 million tons of that rail. So there's still 40 million tons of spare capacity on the whole rail, rail line. So um, when you say the 80 million tons per, um, per annum capacity, are there other users of the? Do you share the railway line? Yeah, we share the railway line. So it belongs to uh, the company IOC, our neighbors. But thanks to the, uh, first, um, the first prime minister of Canada, uh, he made the Canadian Transport Act. And when a rail crosses two provinces, you're obligated to offer the service. And there's a special arbitration process to make sure that it's not operated in a monopolistic way. So that's why we can get very good rates to get our material down, even if we don't own the uh, the rail. And when you look at who's being who's using it right now, IOC uses roughly about 20 million tons, and we'll be at 15 million tons. And then there's uh, a few small users that combine do about 5 million tons per year. So that's your 40 million tons being utilized today and the 40 million tons of spare capacity. Okay, and um, is it likely that you can um, maintain your current rates if you, let, let's say you eventually get to the third line um, and you're talking about another seven or eight million tons down the railway, will it be at the same rate? Do you get uh, a reduced rate because you're increasing your tonnage or do they say, right, now that the next step is is higher cost? That's all a negotiation with the, uh, with the, um with the company that owns the rail, but typically once you've had a fixed rate, it sort of sets a standard. So I can't tell of the potential negotiations for the future, but uh, we do have a pretty good idea of what the costs are to operate the rail and um, what our potential cost would be as well. Do they give you, um, do you publicly talk about a, um, a ton per kilometer figure? No, exactly. We don't, uh, we, we've got pretty strict contract. When you look at our, our, I mean, we're a public company, it's fairly transparent. You can look at our total logistics costs, and that gives you a pretty good idea of uh, what the rail contract is, but we don't disclose the official numbers. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then we come to the port. Um, I, I've seen some notes that you've, uh, there was some uh, point where there was uh, multi-access, birth use access, um, multi-user access. Could you just explain that and, and capacities and, and your your opportunities there? Yeah, so originally when we uh, bought Bloom Lake from the Cliffs uh, bankruptcy proceedings, uh, well, we didn't buy the port. What we did is we partnered up with the Quebec government to be able to buy that infrastructure. And since then, uh, the Quebec government has reinvested roughly about $500 million to modernize these facilities. You got to remember, these facilities were built roughly in about uh, early 60s. So uh, they needed a little bit of love. And the government uh, invested roughly about that $500 million. They fixed all the electrical work. They redid some uh, spur lines. They uh, we built a new stacker reclaimer. So all of that has been done, and um, so that facility today has a capacity probably of around thirty to thirty-five million tons per year. But with the addition of just a new car dumper, all the stockpile areas and the and the stacker reclaimers are in place. So with just a new uh, car dumper, we could probably boost that capacity to about fifty million tons per year, and that would match perfectly the new berth because the new berth can load uh, Cape size vessels in under 40 hours, can load China Max vessels if required, can also load Panamax if we want to send smaller vessels to Europe. But essentially that berth has got a capacity of 50 million tons per year. And the difference with the users, we say multi-user, but today there's only two users. There's ourselves and Takora. So we produce roughly, uh, we'll be at a run rate of about 15 million tons, 
Decora, I think in the past years, produced between two and three million tons per year. So you can see that there's a whole lot of spare capacity with that infrastructure as well. So you won't even need to uh, talk about a new uh, car dumper until you until there's a doubling of capacity, really? Correct. So if we, let's say, wanted to build the CAMI project that we'll probably talk a bit later, well, uh, that's an extra 8 million tons per year. That would probably require a new uh, car, dump, car dumper. Goodness, because it, I've worked in iron ore. And it's the, the, the joke is when exploration geologists go from gold, as I did, to iron ore, that um, we, in, in gold exploration geology, you spend your entire time looking for the stuff, whereas with iron ore, the headache only begins once you've found the stuff. You know, actually got to work out how to get it out to market. Um, and what you've just described there is a significant logistics infrastructure with capacity to uh, expand at minimal capital um, expenditure to yourselves. Yeah, I don't think you'd find that in many places around the world. <laughs> we visited quite a lot of iron ore regions, and you're typically bottlenecked on your infrastructure because that's where you want to be bottlenecked because yeah. that's the highest cost. And here we got a unique situation where the bottleneck is not at all on the logistics side. So as you mentioned, we've got fair, much lower capital investments to be able to bring new tons of high-grade iron ore to the market. In one of your presentations, uh, you talk, you've you got that slide where you talk about the average investment into uh, iron ore capacity in the last 10 years relative to, uh, or iron ore production in the last 10 years prior to the decade earlier. Um, but isn't that just a function of what you've just described, that 20 years ago, the, the, the majors, the, the four majors that uh, kind of run the iron ore sector, uh, invested in their own infrastructure and since then they've just been working up to their kind of capacity limits um and so there's been no real money being spent on um new projects because the cost of the infrastructure is prohibitive yeah, and that, that's why when when you look at potential um view on the pricing of iron ore in the past you typically had well when the price is a bit higher well you had typically australia that would just ramp up the tons a little bit more and at a fairly low cost. So that created some sort of balance. But what we're seeing today is as soon as demand goes up a little bit, well, there's no new tons that can come onto the market easily. There's a few large projects around the world that have been in discussion for the past 50, 60 years, but there's nothing concrete that's necessarily been delivered. And it's tough to just do an increment of eight to 10 or 20 million tons because you're bottlenecked of the infrastructure side. Really, really interesting. Well, let's let's talk now on costs and margins, which have got two elements to it. One is the operating costs, and the other is the the, the product premium that you're that you're getting. So let's just if you could just talk me through the costs uh, in the first instance and in your uh, most recent financials. There's kind of you know there's quite a loss a long list of inflationary items in there. Um, now, the, the way that I see costs is that typically they, they go up much more easily than they go down. Um, could you just kind of, uh, are, are, we, are we here now on the, on the costs? Is, is, are we living with steady inflation and we, you've just got to live with that in your cost structure? Well, we've got a bit of an abnormal uh, situation right now in terms of cost because we've been very good at delivering projects on time and budget. But you still got to remember that we are in the process of ramping up one of the largest mining projects in North America in the last 10 years. So today we're slapped with 100% of the fixed cost, but we don't have the full volume yet. So as we bring that volume up to its nameplate capacity, well, you'll see those costs going down. So I agree that it's tough to, to bring down the costs in typical situations, but if you're 3 million tons below your nameplate capacity at the moment, 
I think it's normal that our costs are a bit higher. And if you look at the last quarter, there's about eight bucks Canadian per ton that are associated to the fact that we haven't ramped up to the full tonnage yet. But the, the, the comforting thing for us is the fact that when the plant operates today, it operates over nameplate capacity. So there's no design issues with the plant. What we're doing now is ramping up the mine. It took a bit more time to get our mining trucks delivered than uh, we had expected. That's always the, um, the challenge when you deliver a project ahead of schedule. I mean, we delivered the plant three months ahead of schedule, but then all the surrounding equipment uh, is not necessarily uh, following. So right now we've got all the equipment for the phase two. It's being assembled. So all the trucks, the drills and everything. So we feel very confident we'll bring that up and be able to bring that uh, portion of cost down. Now, the second portion, the inflation, well, obviously we've been hit with uh, higher uh, fuel prices, higher explosive prices. I think that's pretty much through the, the, the whole mining industry and uh, also the, the contractor costs and the spare, uh, the spare parts. So there, those are the elements that are more associated to the inflation that have brought our costs a little bit higher. But when you look at uh, our costs, if you bring down that $8 per ton, bring us to a normal run rate, I think we're very well positioned to have significant margins for our shareholders. And labor, um, th thank you, by the way, th th those are excellent answers. Um, but um, now let's just talk about labor, uh, the, the personnel for the for the mine. Is it coming down now that you're out of the construction phase? Uh, is it stabilizing? What's your labor pool like? Yeah, right now we've almost hired all of our employees for phase two. There's a few specific areas that we still have contractors that'll slowly transition out, but the bulk of the contractors are uh, out of the site now associated to the construction or to the ramp up. So we've now taken full control of the whole operation and uh, making sure that that's done with our own employees. And so the cost of contractors, as you mentioned, is going to go down as well. Is, is there a, um, a residential um, kind of culture there or is it a f um, f um, FIFO, fly in, fly out? Culture? We're a fly in, fly out model. So we operate in a small town, but the small town, all the houses belong to uh, the other iron ore mine. So we have a fly in, fly out model. We've got all of our facilities at site, but it makes it a bit more interesting because you're, you're not doing a fly in, fly out. Well, some people would say it's in the middle of nowhere, but I, I don't feel it's in the middle of nowhere because you've got a small town, you've got a grocery, you've got um, a place to go see, uh, to go see shows. So it, it, it's a small, let's say 3,000, 3,500 uh, people a town that we fly in and fly out of. And our model is a little bit different where we've got about seven different points around Quebec where we fly people in, typically go to certain smaller villages that in the past had difficulties finding work. And that allows us to have a much more loyal workforce because maybe a bit more time to train them initially, but then because we go pick them up at maybe uh, 10, 12 hours away from Montreal of driving time, well, it allows to, to not, they don't have any other options of other fly and fly out uh, mining projects. So it allows us to have that sort of stability in our workforce. Smart. I like it. Um, uh, I've also heard, talking about taking more time to, to uh, train people, um, I speaking to some of, some of my mine finder friends in Africa, and they said that when they are building a mine there and uh, an open pit mine, they uh, say the worst people to train are men who already know how to drive. Uh, and the best people, the best truck operators are uh, women who haven't been taught anything on how to drive. So you can teach them right from the beginning and they really look after the machinery. Um, what's your what's your gender split on the, on your workforce? Yeah, I'd say that uh, I agree with what you just said. The issue is that you've got a bit of a bigger complexity to uh, hire more women when you're flying fly out operation. So we found it harder 
we, we've got um, over 10% of the workforce being women, but uh, it's difficult to ramp it up because of the fly in fly out model. So what we've been doing right now is trying to brainstorm on different ways that we can accommodate and different ways that we could potentially integrate more women at, at site. Where we've done a fantastic job in terms of diversity is in the region where by far the largest employer of First Nations. So we've built a very strong relationship with Wasat Manitinam, the First Nations that uh, claim the lands where we operate. And um, we've got about 10% of our workforce as well that is from Wasat uh, Manitinam. Okay, thank you. Moving away from the local communities and the and the issues of labor um, to the, uh, and, and the flip side of the costs is to maintain your margin or in perhaps even increase your margin, uh, your end product. So uh, let's talk about where you sell your product, uh, both the 66% concentrate and the 69% uh, DRI in the future. Yeah, so right now the numbers I'll quote you will probably not be reflective of this current calendar year just because we're doubling our production. But if you go to when we were operating just with phase one, between 30 to 40%, depending on the years, would go to Japan. We would sell a portion to the Middle East, into Korea. Uh, we're selling more and more into Europe now, and the balance of the tons are going into China. As we transition towards the 69% material, well, then we're gonna start selling closer to home. So we're gonna maximize the tons that are being sold into Europe Middle East and uh, even be able to enter the US market and potentially Canada as well. So our intent is to be able to lower our shipping costs. And when you look at the whole dynamic, you probably see it when you read um, when you read any news about steel, there's significant subsidies from governments around the world to help steel manufacturers go from blast furnaces to electric arc furnaces. Just here in Canada, the government's invested over a billion dollars to help two um, steel manufacturers convert. But when you look at who's actually going to supply the material for this industry, well, there's no projects being announced. So you, everybody's saying they're going to get scrap, but there's a finite amount of scrap and especially the prime scrap. And what's a big advantage for material like we're going to produce is that the more scrap you want to integrate or the lower quality scrap you'll have to take, and you will need this high-grade pure material to be able to dilute down the contaminants. So that's why in the future we believe Europe, Middle East, US, and uh, Canada will be our four best markets. So. And what what's the benchmark price that you set your product against? So right now we sell to the P65 index. We've got a small premium to that because we're a bit of a higher grade, 66 material. But as we transition towards the 69, well, we believe in the future this pricing will, will evolve and it'll be closer and it'll be linked to the scrap prices because essentially it's going to be a replacement of scrap into the same industry. So I think there's going to be a decoupling with the 66 or the 65, 62% index and the DR material will be able to go closer to scrap prices. And because when you look at the curves, oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, go on, look at the curves. I mean, I was just going to ask, what is that difference? What is that difference? Yeah, so today, it's a, I mean, the, the, the spread between just let's, if we start between the 66 and the 62, uh, that's changed depending of how China imposes environmental restrictions. So if you look at last year, there was a lot of COVID issues in China. They had zero environmental uh, restrictions for steel production. So you had the margins for our material of between 10 to $15 per ton. But if you go back just one year, while well, the premium went up to close to 40 bucks per ton for this uh, same material. 
So as soon as China puts restrictions for for um, environmental reasons, so to lower CO2 intensity per ton of steel produced, well, then you want to buy higher grade material because for the same amount of uh, CO2 emissions, you can pump out more steel. So right now, we're already seeing China reimpose uh, some environmental restrictions. We'll see how that evolves this year. But we think that medium term, that's going to come back and the premiums for that material are going to be uh, pretty solid. Now, if we enter the 69% material, that's a whole different uh, game because right now, the whole iron ore um, industry is about 2 billion tons. The DR material is roughly about 150 million tons per year. And of that, only 30 million tons is merchant. So the rest, it all belongs to integrated uh, steel mills. So of that 30 million tons, it's a pretty small market today. But what we're seeing is that with what's being built in terms of electric arc furnaces today, not what's been announced and will start in 2025, 20, what's being built today, it's going to create an extra demand of 30 million tons. So the merchant market will double in the next 18 months, potentially, and unless people mir miraculously find scrap for, uh, for, um, for the feed of these materials. So in very short term, it's doubling. And if you look at the projections for 2030, it's actually about four times what it is today. So when you look at that, it's got the same increase curve as what is forecasted for lithium and graphite. And you can see everybody's excited talking about lithium graphite. Nobody's talking about the DR material. Nice. I like it. Um, <clears throat> what's the what's the scrap premium to uh, the, the P65 benchmark at the moment? Uh, the scrap premium, uh, a few hundred dollars when you compare to uh, to actual iron ore. So that's hovered as well, but it's priced in a complete different uh, in a complete different space. So the potential value accretion for our material is significant. Uh, it's not just a few dollars per ton. It can be uh, in the many tens of dollars per ton for uh, material that we would produce. Already today, if we were to sell DR material, what we're seeing is roughly between 25 to 30 US dollars per ton premium above the high grade index, so above the P65. So you can see already today, it's a pretty good margin, but we see that potentially increasing in the future. Interesting, thank you. So let's just go back to that. Let's go back to that feasibility study. You've just put out the the, the results. Um, you published your NPV with using an 8% discount rate, which I was very pleased to see. Um, for, a, for a mature uh, producing company, that's a conservative, um, discount rate to use, presumably reflecting your cost of capital, or perhaps not even, but it's it's refreshing to see that. Was that a conscious decision? Everything we put out, we want to be able to achieve. So as we mentioned on the first, uh, first few minutes, we own 10% of the business. It's a sizable business now, as you mentioned, three and a half billion dollars. And when we put out numbers, we don't want to pretend and, and make it all pretty if we don't think we can achieve it. And as you mentioned, in today's market, 8%, would it be a little bit better maybe? But if that's the order of magnitude of the cost of capital that we would have. And when you look at the CapEx numbers, you even saw 350 million US. We put a significant contingency on that. And we didn't, we used uh, actual production um, costs that we had in terms of the construction for the phase two. So we didn't base our numbers on previous numbers and in, on, um, 
on sort of dream scenarios. We put it on actual numbers that we think we can hit. You talk about uh, not getting ahead of yourselves. You know, you're putting $10 million towards the advancement of this feasibility study, um, but you're only going to make a final investment decision on, and you mentioned two things. One was additional power capacity and, and the other was non-dilutive funding. Could you talk about both of those, please? Yeah, if, if we start with the funding, Realistically, I, I do feel it's going to probably be a little bit like phase two. We're going to put a financing package in place, but we'll self-fund this out of cash flow. But it's important for us, again, to be on the conservative side. So the last thing we want is that during the construction period, well, then there's a little blip in the iron ore price and we need to potentially uh, go for financing at the wrong time. Better do that ahead of the, um, ahead of the uh, project. And what we're looking to do similar to what we did to phase two, go see our banking partners and be able to have some sort of um, some sort of credit facility with the banks to be able to allow us to fully fund the project, even if there was potential issues. But I mean, you're talking about 350 million US over the next 30 months. So. And so that's effectively uh, almost like a sidecar to, existing, to your existing revolving credit facility, just to, to make sure that there's uh, smooth, it kind of to, to smooth out any potential um, perturbations in the in the in the in the cash flow requirements over the next three years, two and a half years. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Thank so you. So that's in terms of the um, in terms of the financing portion. When we look at power, well, realistically, the uh, Quebec government um, has realized recently that there's quite a lot of demands for uh, different projects, and they've transitioned also the um, Hydro Quebec, so the monopoly that owns all of the electricity here in Quebec has now transferred to the Minister of Economy. Um, and uh, they've just put out a new, uh, a new sort of uh, list of requirements to be able to achieve, to be able to um, get access to power. And of that list, what we're starting to hear is that it needs to decarbonize the, uh, the world. So we've got to tick on this one. It's got to be socially accepted. And as we mentioned, we've got the best, rep um, the best relationship with the First Nations. Uh, I don't see any uh, potential issues there. And it's got to increase productivity, uh, which it will do. So I think we tick all the three boxes. We'll be able to see in the coming months, but I, fe I feel fairly confident we'll be able to achieve that as well. Um, have you got um, a kind of a timeline when you'd like to announce an FID or is that too early to say? Yeah, so what we've, the, the 10 million that we've authorized right now, it was to secure that 30 month timeline. So the, the counter starts, let's say first of February. And we believe that by the end of this summer, uh, we'll be able to potentially have the power secured and the um, funding package to allow us to take a full um, a full decision there. Okay, so end of summer within Q3, let's say. <clears throat> Correct. Good. Um, right, Cami, on your the next expansion or the, another potential area of expansion. Well, I think if just take a step back from Cami. So we, we started with the uh, view that high-grade iron ore is going to be the future. And even today, we believe that today's high-grade is going to be tomorrow's low-grade. So the new high-grade is going to become this DR material. So what we've done over, over the past five years, while nobody was looking, we just accumulated the equivalent of about 10 Bloom Lakes in our portfolio in terms of resources of iron ore. And CAMI was one of the best um, acquisitions that we made. It's a project that if you go back a few years, had a market cap of roughly about 350 to $400 million, and that we picked up at a pretty good price uh, last year. Now, what we want to do, there was a feasibility study that was done for that project. Uh, it's a feasibility study that we don't stand by. 
So as we mentioned, when we publish numbers, we want them to be things we can realize. And the second thing is that we don't feel that the market needs another 65% material. I mean, there's potential Simandu, there's potential projects uh, out of Africa that could potentially service that market. We want to make DR material. So we're redoing the feasibility study now that'll be delivered by the end of this year and uh, calendar year. And um, our, um, our intent is to be able to have an 8 million ton per year um, DR pellet feed material. So we're increasing the grade from the 65% to the uh, DR material. We've done pretty much all the test work, all the lab work. The material is similar to Bloom Lake. It's upgradable to uh, maybe not 69, but about 68 and, um, and a half. So uh, we do feel that's gonna be an extremely good potential for us. And as you correctly pointed out earlier, we've got all of the infrastructure already in place to be able to process that material. Thank you. So it's uh, another parallel stream to existing and known technology and process. You know, it's it's another, you're just kind of building up another silo, another, another stream. Yeah, that would be a standalone project most likely. So it would be a mine with its concentrator to be able to upgrade the material to the 60, call it 68% uh, grade. And that would be an increase of 8 million tons in our portfolio of this high-grade material. And it would come potentially come down the same railway? Correct. And yeah, uh, if, you, if you take an um, uh, aerial view, the two projects are about 12 kilometers apart or 17 kilometers by road. So they're, they're, they're right beside one, one another. And uh, you're also looking at a pellet plant uh, down by the port. Yeah, we've been looking at that pellet plant for a while. Um, it was uh, operated all the way to about 2013. Um, we mainly purchased it because uh, of the, the actual location. It's at the best spot imaginable. It's right between our two stockpiles where we put our, our material at the port. It's got access to water, access to power. Um, it's got access to all the, the, um, the port in, um, import potentials. So for the different materials you need for uh, pelletizing. So it couldn't be in a better spot. So essentially we bought what we believe is the best location in Canada to build a pellet plant. The, the pellet plant's in bad shape, so uh, we would remove all of the equipment inside. The building's in uh, fairly good shape, so that would stay. But realistically, we would change all of the, um, all of the uh, equipment inside to make sure that we've got a good operating uh, cost pellet plant and also using newer technology because for the same size of plant, what used to be able to make 5 million tons per year today can make 8 million tons per year. So we're doing a feasibility study now to be able to have an 8 million ton per year uh, pelletizer. And as we've announced, to be able to de-risk the project, uh, we've partnered up with one of the largest steel mills in the world, also one of the um, steel producers that has the lowest CO2 intensity per ton of steel producers in the world, because we're fully aligned in terms of values. And uh, we're working together to deliver that feasibility study. I completely understand the reason behind not wanting to take it on yourself because a pellet plant is a very different uh, beast. It's, it, it, it really is halfway to uh, the complexity of a steel furnace or um, a, a, an iron ore furnace. Um, good. Um, timelines on, on, on the pellet plant and kind of when, what's, the, what's the trajectory of your evolution of thought on that look like? Yeah, so if we look at our view, maybe uh, that ties into capital allocation is the, um, the DR pellet feed uh, I'd be pretty surprised we wouldn't go forward. So obviously we need board approval and we need to finalize a few elements, but uh, that will be able to take a decision this summer on this. 
Then at the end of this year, we'll be able to have all of the feasibility studies for the pellet plant and for CAMI. And I do think that potentially those two product projects are going to be um, put one, one against the other in terms of uh, shareholder uh, value accretion. So we'll look at that and at the different possibilities. And at that moment, it'll be easier to give a, a clearer timeline on when and if these projects could come online. But I think the good thing is that we're setting up the company to be ready to fully benefit from this DR material price increase in the future. And um, you've been putting out this semi-annual dividend of 10 cents. Is, is that part of the uh, planning? Are you, uh, are you aiming to keep that, maintain that dividend? Yeah, and, and again, when, when management and, and directors own over 10% of the business, we're fully aligned with shareholders on potentially continuing to receive a dividend as well. So uh, it's um, we, 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 something that will be evaluated every six months, but the intent is to be able to continue that uh, that dividend in the future. I, perhaps I should have asked this question right at the beginning, but uh, what do you, when you're kind of um, plotting the, 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 the grand scheme of things um, over your cornflakes in the morning, um, what do you see as the vision for the company kind of longer term? So we've positioned this company to still be a growth vehicle. So it's very rare, I think, that you've got the types of iron ore resources that we have in our portfolio the people that we have to be able to deliver the projects on time, on budget, and as we mentioned, the spare capacity on all the infrastructure. What we've done very well to position ourselves for growth as well is one of our major shareholders is the Quebec government. So um, they've made quite a lot of money investing with us, and they've supported us since day one. So I think we've, we've set up the company in such a way that to be able to further expand here in Quebec and in Labrador, uh, we're extremely well set up. We've got the resources, as we mentioned, and the, the team to be able to do it. So when I'm eating my cornflakes or my uh, my all brand to, to stay healthy, uh, when we, when we um, think in the morning on how we want to bring this company, uh, we don't want to build uh, just out of ego and uh, out of arrogance. So it's got to be well-timed in the market to fully uh, capture these premiums. But the way that we're seeing this, uh, we do see that DR material is going to be as required as the increase of lithium and graphite. We do believe that there's no other projects, at least that we've seen of scale, that have been announced to be able to supply that market. I don't know if you saw recently, but even Bill Gates invested in this in this uh, company called Boston Metals, and they're they're finding ways to make green steel out of uh, low grade material, and they came out with the results that it takes 500 megawatts. To produce one million ton of steel and i'm not an energy expert but i know that that's a whole lot of energy for one million tons of steel so that still today positions high-grade iron ore as the only known way to decarbonize the steel industry so i think we've got the great jurisdiction and the great team to bring that forward thank you what's what, talking about your shareholder register um management and uh, team 10%. How much does the Quebec government own? And, and can you talk me through any of the other notable uh, blocks on your shareholder register, please? Yeah, we've got the Quebec government and another fund out of Chicago, Windchurch, that uh, are close to 9% um, each. Close to 9% each. So um, we've also got some uh, large families that have been following Michael O'Keefe for quite a while out of Australia that own roughly about a 20% of the uh, company. And then we've got certain institutions that have come in as well over the years. So we've got a, a more uh, balanced shareholder base um, that has built. Uh, we've got over half of our, uh, or even more than half of our shares 
that are on the ASX uh, and also of Australian uh, shareholders. And then the rest are spread uh, spread around the world here. Sorry, Michael O'Keefe, um, forgive my ignorance. Well, M- Michael O'Keefe, part of the uh, management and directors. So he, he owns the largest uh, portion of the... Um, of the 10%. Of that, close to, yeah, close to 11% total, yeah. Okay, okay, got it. Um, good, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to seeing the progress and uh, the updates. Um, as the company advances. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. See you soon. Thanks.